I'm Devin Higgins, and welcome to the first episode of the first season of Skull Sessions. For the last 15 years, I've been a journalist, broadcaster, producer, podcaster, and content creator for news, sports, and pop culture media outlets around the country. But thanks to the impact of the COVID pandemic last year, I found myself at a crossroads in my career and decided to step out on my own with this show. I first heard the term Skull Session back in the 1990s when studying the history of baseball. And the working thesis behind this show is behind every one and every idea is a story worth telling. My goal is to explore that thesis through various topics with a new guest every week in an unscripted format. I first met Tara Dublin when I broke into the Portland, Oregon radio scene in 2008. At the time, she was a midday personality on the city's biggest alternative music station, while I was a lonely intern just hoping for a shot in sports talk. Sadly, her five-year stint behind the mic ended in 2009, and the single mom of two found herself having to carry on away from the business she loved so much. She got by working odd jobs and grinding away as a freelance writer and essayist, but her biggest change came after forging a presence on Twitter during the eras of both Barack Obama and Donald Trump. In 11 years, Tara's tweets have earned her more than 61,000 followers, including celebrities like Patton Oswalt, Kevin Pollack, Mark Ruffalo, and Rachel Maddow. However, it's also gotten her into some very horrifying situations that illustrate just how dangerous the Internet's become in the 21st century. We talk about the impact that Trump presidency's left on her, how she broke into radio and the obstacles she's faced as a woman in a male-dominated industry she thinks can still be saved, how her first leave to digital media could not have gone any worse, her 30-year, purely platonic relationship with Foo Fighters frontman Dave Grohl, and how all she really wants now is an agent to help her become the writer she's always aspired to be. Thanks for joining me for this first Skull Session with Tara Dublin. My first, and obviously the most pressing question I have for you, given how things have gone in the last seven days, uh, and because people may not understand, we are recording this post-coup attempt and yes. post the Friday Night Social Media Massacre. Terry right. Dublin, how's Hi. your week been? Damn! Well, what's funny is it started out, you know, like we were full of optimism on Monday, or maybe maybe some cautious optimism because we thought naively that uh the vote would happen on wednesday and then we could all just you know live our lives that obviously didn't happen and i remember uh you know waking up even wednesday morning the the big news wednesday morning before all of that happened was merrick garland merrick garland announced as joe biden's ag and within minutes that's wiped off of the news cycle completely because of what happened at the capitol so what I remember most about what I the, the visceral feelings from Wednesday, I think, is something that it's going to take me a really long time to forget because it was the same feeling, obviously not the same situation, but the same feeling as 9-11 because I had my television on from like eight o'clock in the morning. And remember, I'm on the West Coast. So eight o'clock in the morning until about 1.30 a.m., my television was on either MSNBC or C-SPAN, and that was it. I did nothing else. I broke away for seconds to write some breaking news stories for HillReporter.com because I'm a contributor there. Otherwise, Devin, I could not tear my eyes away from the screen. And the same sense of violation and disbelief and horror that I felt on 9-11 because we think we're invulnerable and we're clearly not. 
for five years, really, ever since he descended that gold escalator, they have had help being angry, being energized, and having their anger and energy validated. And that is the problem. Because it's one thing for people to scream their sadness into the internet. We all do it. But to have it validated from the top and then have that trickle down through all of the Republicans to have official messaging from verified government accounts inciting violence, encouraging sedition and treason, telling people to get wild. Ted Cruz standing in front of this crowd and whipping them into a frenzy. Don Jr. whipping them into a frenzy. All of them are responsible. They did this on the daily, on social media for years. And then leading up to this, there was tons of chatter online. And the thing that I can't comprehend is that the FBI watches these people all the time. They infiltrate these groups. That's how we find out about cults and other things, because they get people to be spies and they sneak in and they become part of these of these groups. Right. And they infiltrate them so that they can stop them. So I'm assuming that FBI must have had some sort of knowledge. There should have been a more, a poli- you know, a police presence on the ground. There should have been more backup. National Guard should have been standing at attention already like they were for the BLM protests. Um, and people have made the comparisons all week long that if the protesters were people of color, it would have been completely different. And we can't look away from that. We can't look away from the white privilege that allowed this to happen. They were walking around with no masks on, not just because they don't believe in the masks for the pandemic, but because they felt emboldened and they felt encouraged and they didn't care if they were being seen because they thought they were going to get away with it. Slowly but surely, we are seeing they're not getting away with it. The bison guy got arrested. You know, the guy that was sitting in Nancy Pelosi's chair got arrested. The guy that took her podium got arrested. So slowly but surely, there will be consequences. But the ultimate consequence needs to start where it began, which is with Donald Trump. So his voice is gone from Twitter. That's great. However, all of his sycophants are still there. His children are still there. His supporters are still there. They're all changing their user photos to his photo. It's a fucking cult. I can swear, right? Mm-hmm. Okay. So it's a fucking cult. If you watch any documentary about any cult, there's always a cult expert that says no one joins a cult. They join a movement that echoes their beliefs or um, it gives them a support system they didn't have. They mirror somebody's feelings so that that person feels like they belong. So if you watch the documentary about the Nexium cult or you watch the one about Heaven's Gate or you watch Scientology, it's usually intelligent people, of course, stupid people who don't think for themselves. Those are very easy to get. But there are people who are very intelligent who have been sucked in by this for one reason or another. Now, the people who are in government like Ted Cruz, like Josh Hawley, like Lindsey Graham, who are educated. So that's how we got here. Because these Republicans, whatever the compromise is on them, that's to them more important than 
protecting our democracy. Having been through journalism school and have this hammered into my brain by many a J school professor before I ever got into my career, we are not, we try and we strive not to be hyperbolic about things. But dare I say, you seem a little passionate about all this. What? Me? No, I don't really have any opinions, Devin. I don't know why we're talking in the first place. No, um, of course not. <laughs> and to think well, about it, you know, I was thinking about before I had you on, and one of the many reasons why I've had you on was it, it kind of hit me the other day as I was starting to put this whole little pet project of mine together, that you and I met over a decade ago. Yes. Uh, where I was a lowly intern breaking into Portland radio, and you were already an established voice in Portland radio, granted mm-hmm. – Far, far from the field of Portland political radio or any political Is there such a <laughs> position at all, because hmm. you were working for the big alternative radio station in town. That's correct. Doing midday work. And my question yes. for you is, 10, 11 years later, if you could go back to that person, mm-hmm. is there a way, could, could you have possibly foreseen where you were then that you would have ended up where you are now this far into the political strata from where you know. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, when I got hired at 94, seven in 2004, I, I really didn't. I mean, I paid attention to politics in the way that uh, every voting American, sh- everyone, every voting American should pay attention to politics in some respect, they should know what the issues are. They should know what's going on in the world. Um, I think not paying attention does your, does you a disservice. Ignorance is not bliss when it comes to national security. But I wasn't. And also, George W. Bush was president at the time, and I hated him. And I knew a lot about him personally because in the 90s, I used to work for George Bush's roommate at Yale. And they, to this day, are, are, are close friends. So I knew a lot of things about the Bush family in the 90s that really changed my mind about the way people use politics to get ahead. I, I was pretty naive about the way it worked. So in but in 2004, all I cared about was music. Like it was still my you know, my number one passion was music. I could talk all day and night about, and radio was my passion. So and it's still you know, I still feel passionate about terrestrial radio and how it can be saved. But I wasn't really paying attention. It was like, oh, George Bush did that. What a jerk. But did you hear the new Killers single? That was me in 2004. And I was also in 2004 very unhappily married and looking to get out of that. And radio, my job at the radio station gave me a life that I didn't have before. It gave me autonomy and it gave me, um, you know, a voice of my own. I wasn't a doctor's wife and just somebody's mother. I was Tara from 94.7. And for the first time in my life, people were listening to me for me. And they listened to my opinions. Well, my listeners listened to my opinions. I think you and I have had the conversation where the men in radio really didn't honor me as much as I deserved to be honored, despite the fact that I continuously over and over said things that were proven to be right later. And then they would just like blow me off. So going back to something you said about, you know, growing up as a Jersey girl, I know that, you know, it took you a while to break into radio. So if you can kind of outline that, because and I know you've met these people just like I met these people. At one point when I broke in, I was of this same mindset of 
I'm just going to walk into a radio station. They're going to gift me a job. And inside of two weeks, I'm going to be, and I know I'm dating myself here, but people will remember the name. I'm going to be Casey Kasem, or I'm going to be, for the sake of argument, Rush Limbaugh, or whatever your political stance is, that you're automatically going to be just given that opportunity, and you and I both know... And we both it doesn't work like that. It doesn't matter how much of an untapped goldmine you are. If they don't see the value in you, there's nothing that you can do. So for me, at the time I got my job in 2004, it was a very specific set of circumstances. I had some radio experience prior. I had worked in radio in Augusta, Georgia, um, I had in the nineties, I moved to New York. My ex-husband did his residency at Bellevue and I tried in every possible way to break into music in Manhattan. And everyone was like, I don't know what's this radio station in Georgia. I don't know who you are. I could not break in. So by the time we moved out here, we moved out here in 2001 and I had my second child in 2003 and being a stay at home mom, is fine for so many, and it's a very satisfying and validating lifestyle, and I love being a mother, and anybody who looks at my social media will know. If you came into my house, and there are pictures of my sons everywhere. So being a mother is an incredibly important thing to me. My relationship with my children is the most important thing. However, I needed something more than just being the doctor's wife and being a mother because I needed more. And so... There was an incident on KNRK in 2004 when at the time it was more like it was NRK. It was like really aggro with a lot of Limp Biscuit and, you know, those, those kind of bands. And they had the, the morning shock jock and his name is Marconi. And one morning, uh, Marconi and his producer thought it was a great idea to play the audio of the Nicholas Berg beheading tape and make fun of it. And. I mean, you know, instead of bringing in a stripper that morning, because what they were doing was trying to compete with KUFO, which was at that time taking uh, carrying Howard Stern in the morning. So that, they were trying to compete directly like that. And, you know, as well as I, that that didn't go over well. The wrong people are in charge of radio because you don't compete with your nearest competitor by sounding exactly like them. You're supposed to sound different from them. Give the audience something different. Give them a reason to come to you. So that morning, they decided they played the Nicholas Berg beheading tape. The audience was like, what the fuck are you doing? And demanded they get fired. So they And they were fired immediately. And then Mark Hamilton, the program director, decided to clean slate, automate the station, completely change the format. Because he had at least, you know, the, I'll, I have a lot of bad things to say about him. But he had the foresight to look at the radio landscape in Portland and say, what isn't being played here? How is this audience not being served? There is not a decent alternative radio station here. So he was like, no one's playing classic alternative. There are all of these cool bands breaking because 2004, think about it, we had France Ferdinand was breaking. The Killers were breaking. Snow Patrol, Muse. So there was a lot of great music all of a sudden. Right. After the very early 2000s, which was all of those screamo bands and all of the new metal shit it was all the post grunge stuff oh it was awful you know just terrible trapped you know (laughs) so you know all of that shit so we flipped the format and for you know weeks it was automated no djs everyone was gone and every so often you would hear this message from him saying we're rebuilding this station with your input 
And I was like, well, someday they're going to put humans back on the air. So I emailed him and I did have a voiceover demo at the time because I was doing some voiceover work and he responded, which, which I was shocked to be, because I figured he was being, you know, just inundated. Um, he said, your voice is great, but I'm not looking for just a voice. I need someone who's passionate and knowledgeable about alternative music. And I wrote back and I said, you know, if you give me 15 minutes, you will see that I am that person. He was like, fine, I'll give you 15 minutes. So I went in and met him and I walked into his office and hanging on the wall was a gold record for the color and the shape by the Foo Fighters and a picture on his desk of him with Dave Grohl and Taylor Hawkins and Nate Mendel of the Foo Fighters. And I was like, this job is mine now because all I had to tell him was how I knew the Foo Fighters. So I told him the story of how I met the Foo Fighters, which is in my pinned tweet on Twitter at Tara Dublin Rocks. And they gave me two nights of audition time and they put me on it like from like midnight to three so that I wouldn't, you know, in case I was terrible. And after the first night, Mark called me. He was like, you know, you sound great, but I also was doing that sort of just front cell back cell thing that I had been taught at my very first radio job. And he was like, I don't want you talking over the intros, but I do want you, uh, you know, add some more of you. I want to hear it's okay for you to say you love a song. It's okay for you to say you saw this band and it was the greatest show. Please, I want to hear you. Imagine you're sitting at a bar talking to someone about music. That's what I want. So the second night, um, I did that. And it was a Thursday and a Friday night. He did not call me after the Friday. And I was like, well, I guess that's that. And then Monday he called me and he asked me for references to just check that, you know, I was worthy of employment and, you know, I never stole money from people. Then he called me the next day. He's like, right, Tara, I've called all your references. They had horrible things to say about you. So I didn't know his sense of humor at the time, but he hired me over the phone. He offered me a three-year contract. And I found out later that I had beat people from all over the country who had applied for the job. I beat somebody from ESPN who had applied. I beat people who had been in the industry for years, who had worked in major markets, all because he liked my delivery. And he told me exactly the moment that he knew I was the right person, uh, which, you know, I, I, I hold that in my heart because he said there was just this moment. I was, I had to front sell a song that I had never heard before, which is weird, which is hard to do. And I know maybe you've been in that position too. Um, because I wasn't familiar at the time with Modest Mouse, which everybody knows Modest Mouse now. This is 2004, and they were more local, and they weren't really known. And I didn't know the song. I didn't know what it sounded like. I didn't know what to say about it. So I just said, I was coming out of some other song, and I said, uh, here's the latest one from Modest Mouse. It's, this is Ocean Breathe Salty. It sure does, on 94.7 FM. And Mark said, when he heard me say, it sure does. He just knew that I knew how to talk to people. But that's something that that in in that trade people tend to overlook. Of there are two types of people who work in media. There are people who can create the persona, who can be the Marconi, who can be the Howard Stern, who can be the Don Imus type, and you have the people who figure out a way to be authentic. And that authenticity ends up being able to be just as valuable as any persona you put out there. And and unlike you working in music, 
I broke in doing sports radio, so I found out really quickly that, oh, I'm walking into, you have to be an alpha male, a frat boy, a jock, a misogynist to certain degree, because that's where your demographic is, especially back then. I heard stories in those halls at that station from guys who worked there that if somebody in HR who had a conscience heard it, those guys would have been out of a job the next day because that would have been a lawsuit. But that sort of mentality was tolerated, especially on my side, because, again, to your point, it got ratings. It built audience share. It got, what was it, PP value, I think it was what it was? Uh, yeah, you want the um, your P1 and P2? P1 is the listener who never basically never shuts off the radio. And then the P2 is the one who's like more of a passive listener, but you still want them. So it's all about that. And I mean, again, and and so to have a conversation about early 2000s radio in 2021 is to look at it uh, with a very specific lens. And so, you know, 20 years ago um, or whatever it was, uh, you know, there was that attitude um, that anything goes. You can treat people any way you want as long as the product gets out. And uh, if you were a woman in radio, there it doesn't matter what you look like. Uh, the assumption is that you were there to bang a rock star. That's why you're there. You can't possibly love music for the sake of loving music. You can't possibly be knowledgeable about music for the sake of being knowledgeable because you're a music fan. You're a woman, so you're just there to blow somebody. And that attitude was really prevalent because men in radio still thought it was okay to treat women in radio like second-class citizens when women in radio end up being far more successful than men in radio. Their ratings are higher. Their listeners are more loyal. There is something about hearing a woman's voice that people, it gets, it kind of shocks people out of attention because they so often expect to hear a man's voice. So, And to put me in the midday was that, I mean, that was just, that was my sweet spot because you have, you know, Greg in the morning, it was kind of a curmudgeon and people had that, you know, he, you know, whatever thing for him. But in the midday, and you were talking about being authentic. I don't know how to be any way except the way I am. I don't put on a front. I don't, Mark asked me what name I wanted to use on the radio. Did I want to make up a name for myself? You know, like Gustav. Gustav is not Gustav's real name. And I was like, no, I'm me. I want people to know me. You want an authentic conversation. You don't want DJs talking at your audience. You want a presenter talking with your audience. I'm not going to lie to them and tell them I have a name, a different name, because I'll slip and say my own name. It's right. stupid. For a long time, I didn't use my last name on the air. And then after a while, I was like, well, that doesn't really matter. People are going to find out anyway. Um, for a long time, I didn't talk about the fact that I had kids um, because there's that that feeling that if you're a female DJ, you know, some men see you as sort of a substitute girlfriend. And if you say that you belong to another man or you have children or whatever, it blows their image of you. And then they stop listening. That was something I was told. I was told to cultivate this image of, you know, this fun, loving single. And I was like, I'm not single. I am a mother. I'm not going to lie about my life to, you know, turn on some horn dog out there where it's, and the slogan for 94.7 was, it's different here. I was like, we're here to change the attitude about radio, not just the format of the music, 
I said to Mark repeatedly, if it's different here, we need to back it up with everything we say and do. You know, three years after I got hired, I had to renegotiate my contract. And that's nothing I ever had had to do in my life. And to be sat down in an office with two men who control your salary, your destiny, whatever you want to call it. They literally said to me, Devin, what do you think you're worth? And I was like, what a terrible question to ask any human. It's very, it's really terrible to ask that of a woman. Right. Because you're asking me to justify my existence. Really? And put a price tag on it. What am I, chattel? It was, I felt, I mean, I felt dirty. Yeah. And I almost wanted to get up and walk out, but I loved my job so much that I would have paid them. I loved it. So I never felt like a job. It was a dream. It was the dream. So it gave me the independence to leave my bad marriage. I met the love of my life there. We're not together anymore, but I met the love of my life in that building. I had the, my children were happy. I asked for nothing from life when I was there. It was the happiest I've ever been. So when they said, what do you think I'm worth? What do you think you're worth? I said, honestly, I am worth millions to this company. I'm worth millions because I knew that was true. Right. It is true. They have made more money off of me than any other employee in the history of their, their station. Right. That is the and, truth. And it's funny because there's another DJ who was there, Iris Harrison, who I met her this about the same time I, I met you. And she retired last year after 43 years. She started the week before I was born and was able to sustain it for more than four decades. And you know, she worked her butt off to do all that. Uh, all that. Just, I love Iris. What people don't understand is she, especially now, is the extreme outlier because you lasted five years. I broke in, busted my hump there. My marriage burned out while I worked there. They had me working part-time, 20 hours a week, no benefits. And the most I was allowed to pull in every year was 11 grand. It's just unreal because they know how much you love it. So they know they don't have to pay you a lot for it. And every year, my PD would tell me, dude, I see what you're doing. You're busting your butt. You're a team player. You're this, you're that. Keep at it. Your time will come. And at the end of year four, the start of year five, and I know because you were there five years too, at the beginning of year five, he pulled me into his office and said, yeah, basically all that stuff I told you for the last four years, forget it. If you want to get anywhere, you got to go somewhere else because there were opportunistic ambitious people behind me mm-hmm. who, who knew how to play the politics of it. And again, these were privileged white male frat boys who didn't possess a tenth of the work ethic I had. Or the who, talent. Well, and, and even then, I never really considered myself the most talented person in the world. But my whole mindset was, I know what I need to do is I need to outwork everybody. And build my talent up, but then trying to find ways to get in and cultivate that talent just didn't happen. Like it took me a year to get to a point where I could get behind a microphone to be an update anchor. I never got a chance to even try out for an in-studio position. Even though those opportunities came up, it would always be passed to the guys who had already been there or when they let me go. They had a contest where they brought, they did an American Idol. 
They God. really did. Of they brought people in off the street and just did random deals to take the spot that I wanted that I tried to get for three years. And those people are still there. Oh my God. See, that's the wrong people are in charge of radio. And you can, and you can, you know how, where we can pinpoint that. I don't say a lot of negative things about the Clintons because I don't think a lot of negative things about the Clintons, but the fact that Bill Clinton allowed the deregulation of the SEC in the mid nineties killed. That's what killed radio. It didn't kill radio right away. It was a long, slow death because when you deregulate and you allow a company to own multiple stations in the same city and everybody started losing money and everybody's ratings went down. It's like, what did you think was going to happen? You can't sustain four different stations that sound exactly alike in the same city. And the thing that's so, and I said that, and I would say that to Mark repeatedly over and over. We would talk about when it was in the NRK days. And I said to him, how did it never occur to you before the you flipped before Marconi pulled that shit. How did it never occur to you that the reason your ratings never got up above a 2.3 is because you sounded exactly like KUFO. What were you offering that was different? Absolutely nothing. How do you not, how do you people never see this? Right. And then the other thing that you and I both know that for some reason, people in charge of radio will never understand that is frustrating as fuck. Your audience does not like change. Right. They do not. Why do they listen to you? It's not the music. They can get music anywhere. They don't need us. Especially now. Especially now. And and that's another conversation I had with Mark early on, even before I had to renegotiate my contract and I saw it coming. As soon as people could get, the second they released an iPod, I was like, well, we're fucked. The second you could plug in your iPod into your car, when we learned that technology was available, I went to Mark and I said, we're in trouble. People are going to stop listening to the radio now that they can program their own music in their car. So we're fucked now. That's why you stream online. That's why you do this. That's And he couldn't see it. No. And I said, Mark, why do people listen to the radio? As the Internet was growing, I said to him, they're not going to need us for traffic or weather or mute. We're not going to break music anymore. We're not breaking music. Music is breaking on my space. I was the first DJ in all of America to play the Foo Fighters cover of Band on the Run because I saw it posted on the Foo Fighters post board and somebody sent me an MP3. That's how we got it. I said to Mark, this is the future of music. We're going to get it from other sources. We're not going to break anything new anymore. That has been taken away from us because the internet is more powerful than terrestrial radio. And if we don't do something now, you're going to get lost in the sauce. And I said, the number one thing that you need to hold on to is the human beings who are talking on the radio, because that's why people come back to you. That's why people come back to 94.7 instead of another station, because they count on Greg and Tara and Gustav getting them through their day. I can't tell you, Devin, how many people would call me and say, I appreciate you so much. You sound so happy, like you're enjoying your job and you make my day better. And I could think of no bigger compliment than helping someone get through their day. People who wash dishes and drive trucks and did jobs that they didn't love would call me and say, "I, you got me through my day. And the day they fired me, well, first of all, after I renegotiated, when I was renegotiating my contract and I said, I'm worth millions and I see this and I see that and I, people say this to me and people say that. 
They say, well, the industry standard raises 3%. I was like, great, I'll take it. Why are we having this conversation? I just want to go back to work and work here forever. Right. I want to work here forever. And they said, we know, and we appreciate that. So two days later, Mark Hamilton came into the studio and he said, right, Tara, um, you didn't get the 3% raise we've heard back from corporate. I was like, I didn't get a 3% raise, but I get 2%. He goes, no, you got a 16% raise. Damn. He said, I have never heard of a 16% raise. That is how much of a tremendous asset you are. I cannot imagine this station without you. And I was gone two years later. So I was not a tremendous asset. I don't know. It was I. I know I wasn't the highest paid even after a 16 percent raise. I was not being paid with the two other men on either side of my show were being paid. The most I made at that station is mid 2000s. In two, so I was fired in May, late May of 2009. My salary at that point was thirty nine thousand dollars a year. Thirty nine. Three nine. I was not costing them that much. And you can't tell me that it would have it made that much of a difference after they laid me off because. They kept Greg. They kept Gustav. They, Nelson and Terry were still on the buzz, and both of them were making six figures. And when I asked them about that, I was sitting in the office being fired. I was like, you're paying Nelson and Terry. all." Well, that's a different budget for a different station. I said, take budget away from them and put it like you, you are killing the reason. People, listen. You remove the human factor. People will stop listening. And I was right, and I was right, and I was right. So after I got laid off, Thanks to the rise of social media, and I didn't realize it's what I was doing at the time, but now I have the distance and the humility and the clarity to look back. I absolutely shot my own feet off as soon as I got laid off because I was angry and I was emotional. And people say, well, you know, a woman, she's too emotional. Shut the fuck up. I loved that job. That job was my life. It was my life. And maybe it was wrong of me to make it my life, but I didn't know any other way to live. I was just gloriously, sublimely happy. I turned 40. I had the best party of my whole birthday party of my whole life. A local band played for me. All of these people came. It was glorious. And a week later, you know, like a month later, my job is gone. You know, ever since then, it's just been shit. Right. Well, and people think because you're in the media that you're living this prodigious life because uh, as our culture is, we we envy those people because the line of people who that think that they can do that sort of work is out the door and around the corner. I mean, I celebrated my 40th birthday. I would I went back home to Boston, where I'm from, at the end of 2016 because the media job I had in Central Washington went kaput, not because of anything I did. And I get a job working in the fifth biggest media market in the country. And part of the deal was because they put me in on a contract and took 10 and a half months to make up their mind on whether or not they wanted to hire me full time. I had to live out of my car through a New England winter and a full New England summer. Wow. And people think that because we work in media, because all they see are the people who are at the very top and they're making all this ridiculous money that Again, it trickles down and everybody makes this. And yeah, I was I was getting paid the most money I have ever made in media in my life. Mm -hmm. but, be, but because I couldn't commit to building a life for myself because my employer wouldn't commit to me, that was what I had to do just to get by. 
and, and people they don't, don't care. Oh no, they. I got notified that my contract wasn't being picked up uh, two days before my foster dad's funeral back in Portland, <laughs> and my boss was like, "Well, we need." We needed somebody who was younger and had as much experience as the guy I had filled in for who was out on medical leave. They ended up hiring somebody who was in their like mid-20s, and there's no way that that person had the 26 years of experience that the guy I filled in for had. No, but, they probably could get him for a buck instead right. of having to pay them anything more. So well, it look was what's happening to radio sense. now. I mean, it's this is it's all, you know, it. This is a result of them not seeing the digital revolution that was coming and then not jumping on it sooner. Right. So, I mean, when I, t- I told Mark, I'm like, we need to have a MySpace page. He was like, I don't want to do that. I'm like, well, we're going to do We have to do this. And then when Facebook was a thing, I'm like, we need a Facebook. He was like, no, I don't want to do that either. I'm like, why won't you listen to me when you tell me I'm a tremendous asset? You ask me my opinion and then you devalue my opinion. And then my opinion turns out to be right. And then you will never honor it. It was a very frustrating experience for that. And so and the other thing that's been frustrating post that is to continuously be here from people. You know, you're really so talented. It's a shame. You know, there's nowhere to put you. So after I got laid off for seven years, seven years, I can't say that enough. They did not replace me. And then they finally hired a human female to take over the show that I used to do, who's in her twenties, like you said, lives and voice tracks from Seattle. She's not even in Portland. She's not even physically in the studio, which was infuriating to me because we were so about Portland. Everything's Portland, Portland, Portland. Mm-hmm. I listened. I, somebody told, I didn't even know about it. Someone's like, are you back on the air? Cause there's a, there's somebody talking on 94. I'm like, no, I turned it on. I don't know, remember what her name is. She played, it was a Jane's addiction song was playing and it came out of Jane's addiction. And she was like, uh, you know, some, and I think that was the summer that Lala Palooza was finally coming back. And she said, Lola Palooza, Oh, Lola, Lola Palooza. And I was like, you fucking, I was livid. And here's the thing. I understand that I created a bad reputation for myself in Portland and maybe I've blackballed myself because I dared go on the internet and speak the truth. That's the problem, Devin, is that I went on, I was emotional, yes, but I also went out there and I spoke the truth about what was happening with radio, what was happening with Intercom, what they were allowing to happen to our last free medium. Because they all, the only thing they cared about was the bottom line were they making money and when when commerce corrupts art and i'm sorry i understand that radio is a business but it is a business founded to promote art music is art music is an artistic expression and these people found a way to make money off of other people's art and they co-opted that and they commercialized it And then they shit all over it. They don't care about the art of it anymore. They care about what it gets them. They care about the materialism that trickles down from the art. They care about the swag and the travel and the partying with rock stars. And all that's fun. But when you dig down to the base of why radio was created in the first place, 
It was created to communicate and connect human beings to each other. Do you really think radio can be saved at this point? Yes, I do. I don't want to give away all my solutions because I firmly believe that if anybody would listen to me and hire me back, I could save their radio station within a quarter, for sure, within a ratings period. Like K-Rock in L.A., which is one of the greatest radio stations in American history, is horrific now. But if you gave, you handed me K-Rock, I could turn it around so fast because the number one thing people forget is that every city has its own unique sound. It's Portland Sound, it's Port, Seattle right? Sound, right. LA, so, New York, Boston. What happened with radio, they turned radio into a jukebox for their, for their big money makers so that if you're in L.A., you could listen to the same music in Chicago and New York is going to sound the same everywhere you go. You get in your car, every city sounds the same when you turn on the radio. And that's what's terrible. If you're a person coming to Portland, Oregon, you've never been here before, you want to turn on the radio and see what this city sounds like, good fucking luck. It's going to sound like anywhere else now because of corporate radio. So what I would suggest is you don't have to get rid of that because apparently you can make money from it. That's fine. Every single radio company that is in any city should dedicate one of their stations because they all own six, between six and eight. Dedicate one of them to being hyper-localized because your local community is not being served. And one of the greatest things that 94.7 did, and I don't know if they do it anymore because I can't be bothered to listen. We had a whole get local thing that the late, great Jamie Cooley put together um, where we focused so much on local bands. And we put on shows for local bands and we got local bands to open for national touring bands. We did a lot of things to boost the Portland sound. And we were instrumental in helping launch a lot of local bands into the stratosphere, like the Decemberists, like the Shins, like Modest Mouse. Anybody that came up through from through Dandy Warhols came up through in Portland from the early 2000s. We were there helping them get their music out. No radio stations do this. There should be a radio station in New York that plays New York bands. There should be a station in Chicago that plays Chicago bands. There should be a station in every major city that is focused on, and that's not, not, you mix it in. It doesn't have to be all local that would get tired. You mix local with national and you have something. And then you have to give your terrestrial listeners something that your online listeners can't get. You just create contesting that is targeted at your terrestrial listening audience on the ground and they will never stop listening. It is not hard to give your audience what they ask for. And yet the radio stations never do it. They never do it because somebody in a corporate office somewhere is like, no, you need to play this song from the Lumineers 400,000 times. You need to play this song from Rihanna 400,000 times. It doesn't make sense. It does not make sense to have all of your stations sounding exactly the same all across the country. It just doesn't. I don't know why anybody thinks people need that. They don't. So 2009, you are, you're out of work. You're, you know, you're a single mom of two. You're divorced. You're trying to find your way. You go back to what you know, which is odd jobs, paying bills. Yep. And you said that at the time you had... Under, what, about 8,000 Twitter followers? Yeah, I joined Twitter in 2009 because a friend of mine was like, you know, because I was trying to figure out what the fuck I was supposed to do with myself. How do you make that pivot? Because 
for and and I asked this as somebody who never really figured out Twitter. I don't know that I ever. I mean, I made the pivot to social media, but it didn't turn into some lucrative real life shit. I was still working in. I was working in a restaurant up until the pandemic closed the restaurant. Right. the The reason why I'm asking is because you've been able to still, in spite of that, still cultivate this following and this audience. This, yes. What in a, eleven years you've gone from about. 8,000 followers to over 61,000. Yeah. And, and I know you, and that road has not been smooth and it has no. not been, it has been fraught at various twists and turns with considerable perils. Absolutely. So, yeah, definitely. And maybe someday somebody will buy a memoir from me. When you made that turn, what, I guess, what was your approach and kind of what was your mindset? Well, when I originally joined Twitter in 2009, it was very, it was very different than what it looks like now because <laughs> I so many people are like I joined Twitter to yell at Trump. Well, if you were not on tr- on Twitter prior to the moment he descended the gold escalator, you missed prime Twitter. You missed it. It's done. It's gone. We may never get it back because between 2009 and 2015, Twitter was fun. It was pure fun. Even in 2012, when there was a, a, a presidential election, I will tell you right now, not one of Mitt Romney's supporters came for me and called me a libtard kike. So it was a very different. There was still, uh, you know, political discourse online was still fraught with, I don't know, respect and decency because Mitt Romney wasn't whipping his base into a frenzy. So it was very, very different. And it was a lot of between 2009 and 2015, I want to say it was a lot of people who were writers and comedians and artists and actors and people who were trying to get their work out into the world. And we had fun. We would joke around. There's a lot of hashtag games and clever wordplay and sharing of cool stories and pictures and whatever. And it was just like, it was like a fun cocktail party. And I, I used to compare Facebook and Twitter by saying, Facebook is like the family reunion you're forced to go to and it's not really fun, but you go, but Twitter's the really fun after party that you sneak off to and, and, and talk shit. So that's what it was like. And it was just, for me, it was because I felt like, you know, I had a built-in audience from the radio. I was like, well, maybe they'll follow me onto this new social media platform and boost me and elevate me and I'll get a book deal or I'll get another radio gig or I'll get in my own show or something must come of this because people on Twitter would were, were getting book deals and they were getting recognition for their tweets. Like a tweet would go viral and someone would be like, oh my God, I got an agent from this tweet. And that gave me hope. It gave me hope that, oh, well, someone will find me too. So that didn't happen. And it kept not happening. And I kept having to you know, put a life together piecemeal like a lot of people were doing in Portland, especially you know after the crash in 2009. And I was working in restaurants and getting voiceover jobs. I worked as a background extra on the TV show Grimm for five years. And I managed to cobble together something that looked like a life. And the only reason I got the exalted blue check mark is people like, who are you? I've never heard of you. How come you have a blue check mark? First of all, your blue check mark envy needs to go away. It's really not that big of a deal. The reason... I got verified in 2016 is because I got cyber harassed by Trump supporters. And I had a real life incident that spilled over into the internet and went viral in the worst possible way. 
I got into a fight with a Trump supporter in real life and he filmed, he chased me with his car. I remember watching this. So, and he filmed yep. it and then he put it on the internet and I got doxxed. And back in 2016, people didn't really understand what cyber harassment was. They didn't get it. They didn't get how scary it is and what people can do to you and what they can do to your family. And, you know, I don't want to go into everything that they did, but they found my, you know, my, like my brother was like, you need to delete your Twitter. My ex-husband was like, you need to delete your Twitter. And they were going to, they found my older son's track coach. I say they went after your kids. They went after my kids. They put pictures of my kids on 8chan and 4chan. They, they made memes where they, they said that I, I, I have sex with my own children, um, that I sell out. I rent my children to Nazis because I'm, I'm a Nazi sympathizer. Because once they found out I was Jewish. Oh, man. Forget it. I'm Jewish and a single mother. Forget it. The things that I was called, the things that they did with my picture, the things that they did with my children's photos, I should I, I can't really think about too much. I really can't. No, I'm, I have no doubt. And so I got that because and what what got me verified was they made a fake Twitter account that looked exactly like mine with a photo of my house where I was living at the time. They posted the address and a photo of my house with the landline, which was not a viable landline. It was there for my alarm system and said, come find me. I love to fight Trump supporters. And so immediately, like I reported all of it to Twitter and to you know, to their credit, they verified me immediately. I was able to say, look, I'm a media, I was a media personality in Portland, radio person. I do this, I do that. At the time, I was still also hosting events. I, no one wanted me to host an event after that. That, I mean, now, hopefully it's like more of a buried thing. But if you Google searched me in 2016, it was bad yeah. because it was, you know, crazy killery cunt rag did this. And they, they re-edited the videos to make it look like I was the instigator, that I was doing bad things, which is not true. The guy took me to court. And that's the thing about the internet, especially in the last decade of seeing how much it's not only evolved as far as content, but also how it could be weaponized. Devolved, obviously. And I know a couple of years ago, and, and you and I had talked way back when you first got let go from NRK, you know, one of those things where it was, well, what about embracing digital media? What about getting into things like podcasting? Right. Like and and I at don't, the time, and, I didn't want to do that. And then, of course, you get into it and you get into it with a fraud. Oh and, and, for, and for people who don't understand, Tara did a, a political show. And this was what, 2017, 2018? 2018. With a guy who... With Before the midterms. All his outward appearance was he was a pro-liberal, progressive guy. And he got Tara to be part of this podcast that they did. And you did like a handful of episodes. And all of a sudden... He really... I mean, I want to tell you, he's a very talented predator. And I'm fine. Jason Wade Taylor, Randy Hahn, whatever he's called. Jay Wade. I don't know what he's calling himself now. He's got to be on Twitter still somehow. He found me and romanced me, not romance, but like he like, you're so talented. You're so connected. Why aren't you doing a podcast? And honestly, my whole re the whole reason I didn't want to do a podcast before podcasts were everywhere was I found it hollow and empty because you didn't get that immediate feedback from the audience like you do with live radio. Mm -hmm. And I told him that I was like, I don't find any, you know, you don't get immediate feedback. It's not like you don't know if you have a listening audience. 
He's like, well, let's do a live podcast. I'm like, I didn't know you could do that. And he was like, you know, you have so much, you, you know, your tweets are great and you have so many famous people following you. We could get some really great interviews. And he's like, and I'm connected too. He told me he was a political advisor working on the Beto O'Rourke campaign. And he had the names of all of these people who worked on the campaign. And I Googled him and I researched him. And then people were like, please don't do a podcast with him. He's a criminal. And I was like, what, what? And they sent me all of this other stuff that I didn't know about a, you know, he had, he had a mugshot. He had more than one mugshot. He had this, he had that. And I asked him and because he's a predator and because he's a liar and because he's a professional con man, he had an answer for everything. He was like, all of that is fake. All of these people are against me. We had a falling out years ago and now all they do is work to discredit me. And Tara had stars in her eyes and wanted to do a podcast. I was like, okay. So, and he ever so often would come through with a guest for the podcast, but he was really using my connectivity. Every big name that we got, I got for us. Back when people still wanted to talk to Michael Avenatti, I booked Michael Avenatti. I booked Neil deGrasse Tyson. Nancy Pelosi. I got Nancy Pelosi for a whole 20 minutes, but I got her. And we actually did a special Sunday recording because the only time she could give us was on a Sunday between a fundraiser and getting on a plane. And we did it. And that was one of the best interviews of my life. And I will never forget it because one of the things that I always tried to do in all of my interviews, even with rock stars, when I interviewed Molly Ringwald, when I interview anybody, I want to connect with them in a way that is human and real. I'm not just, I mean, I understand you want to promote whatever you're promoting or you want to talk about whatever's important to you at the top of your thing. You, there's more to your life than what you're talking about today. So I want to dig deep. I want to find something cool. And I want to connect with you on that. Nancy Pelosi had just, at, when I interviewed her right before the midterms, and I had been saying she was going to be speaker again. We were going to flip the house. We were going to get back our majority. I was saying all of that already before I had her on the phone. She had also just been on Time Magazine for the first cover time for the first time ever. I was like, well, that was long overdue. She's 82, 81, 82 years old. So I get her on the phone and I said, you know, we're going to we're going to get into the politics. I said, but I have to ask you something that I've never heard anybody ask you. Like, you look better than people half your age. and You have more energy than anybody. What is your number one beauty secret? What? She's a gorgeous woman. She looks amazing. She looks amazing. So no one asks her that because she's also the savviest political woman in, in America. But still. I expected her to say, well, Tara, every morning I douse myself in the most expensive elephant cream I can find. You know, who knows? She didn't miss a beat, Devin. It was like she was expecting me to ask her. She was ready because she's mm -hmm. Nancy fucking Pelosi. Right. I say, what is your number one beauty secret? She said, dark chocolate ice cream. I was like, really? She said, Tara, dark chocolate ice cream for breakfast. I was like, you got me. <laughs> You got me. You don't see that on the cover of Cosmopolitan. You don't. You don't and you don't. So for me, that was glorious. So then the midterms come. We flip the house. It's wonderful. Everything's exciting. We continue with the podcast. We're looking ahead. You know, and, and between starting the podcast and getting these great people, Jason also promised me. He said he had an agent in New York. He had a book deal. He was going to introduce me to his agent so I can get my book deal because he knew Writing was my, first, you know, a major love of mine. I've been a writer my whole life. Getting published is important to me. I had things to publish. And so 
he knew that and he used that to prey on me. And he gave me the name of the agent so I could Google Google her and see she was a real agent. And he would say, we have a call set up with Amanda. We have a call set up with Amanda. Oh, Amanda called at the last minute. She has has something else she has to do. Amanda would always cancel at the last minute, but always reschedule and then always. And after a while, I kind of picked up on the fact that either there was no Amanda or he had no connection. It was, and after a while, I was just like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Sure. Okay, yeah, we can reschedule. Sure. So then we're getting to the end of 2018 and looking ahead to 2019 and how we were going to do the show. And then we also had a producer named Steve that was involved in all of this. And Jason emails us at the, it was literally like January 1st, 2019. Oh, the um, Julian Castro's campaign wants to hire me and fly me to New York. I mean, fly me to Washington to talk to them. So I'm not going to be able to do the show this week. And we were like, that sounds a little sketchy. Yeah, that's a bit out of the blue. Then we couldn't get a hold of him. And then, I mean, I wrote about this on my Medium page. and I don't even now remember the sequence of events. But basically it came down. Then he was like, I don't want to do the show anymore. Just that quick. That quick. And part of it was. He had tried to get us on a bigger network, you know, to syndicate us. He inflated the numbers to the network. He told them we were getting 100,000 hits. Absolutely not anywhere near that. He said we were negotiating a contract. I, he said we were getting tons of revenue from Google ads. I never saw one penny from him. Now, the, he sent me a laptop and he sent me a microphone. He did do that. It was a rented mic, a rented laptop from Rent-A-Center. And he left me hanging. I had to pay the last payment when I did not have two nickels to rub together. And it was either lose the laptop and all of the information of my whole life that I put on that laptop or find $175. So I found $175 instead. Then I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find this agent in New York and I'm going to find out if he actually does have a book deal. So I emailed her and I said, all right, this is going to sound weird, but, and I laid it all out and she emailed me back almost right away. She said, Tara, I'm very sorry to hear about this. I have never heard of this person. I have never had any contact with this person. And I absolutely do not have a contract with this person. Mm. And so I took a screenshot of it. And we were, we were having a very, we were having a very testy argument in DM. It was Jason and our producer, Steve. And I was like, you want to explain this? Boom. And I dropped the screenshot. And then he, there was, he could not weasel out of that. He had an answer for everything, but he could not answer for that. Right. And he was like, you know, I tried my best. I'm like, no, you didn't. I said, you consistently lied to me for months. And you said that you had this agent when you knew that having a book deal was one of the most important things to me. How could you do this to me? How could you prey on me like this? How could you? I'm sorry. I, I, I did the best that I could. I did the best. He would never answer the why. And that drives me crazy. Right, because the why matters. The why matters hugely. Like, I understand why. You wanted this show. I understand. You, you think you thought you could maybe grift some money from the poorest woman on the Internet. That's great. But we were we were building something that was real. People were really listening. We had real Sherry Jacobus was on it. Molly John Fast was on it. David Jolly was on. Like We had great MSNBC contributors calling in. We had Glenn Kirshner was our last guest. It was one of the best interviews I've ever given in my life. And it was over. And so, like, I couldn't understand why he would why he did all of it and he never answered for it, never once. And he had already moved on and was trying to create a new podcast with a woman named Elena Christopoulos, all centered around climate change and climate action and moving forward politically that way. And I tried to warn her. Yeah, I remember that too. Remember? And she was like, nope, I don't believe you. I don't believe you. I don't believe you. And then she, she blocked me. He blocked me. The producer Steve blocked me. They all blocked me because I was like, he's grifting, he's grifting, he's grifting you. 
And then eventually they both kind of came back to me and they're like, well, you were kind of right. I don't know where he is now and I don't give a shit. Uh, every so often I'll get a tweet from someone that kind of sounds like him and I'll just, you know, block them. But I feel like, every, you know, it is, I think everybody personalizes the universe in their own way. Like the universe hates me because this happened to me. This happened to me. This happened to me. It's hard for me personally to not feel like there's some curse or black cloud over me because it's like I get close to stuff, but not enough. Like I'm good, but I'm not good enough. I get close, but not close enough. I'm talented, but I'm not talented enough. I'm connected, Mm -hmm. but I'm not connected enough. And it's like, when is it enough? What do I have to do to get the recognition? I feel I have worked incredibly hard for. There was a point in 2015, I had a young adult novel that I finally got an agent for. And we worked on editing it for a year. And then she was not a dedicated young adult agent. She submitted it to publishers the week before Christmas 2015. Nobody reads anything before Christmas. So it died on the desk. Nobody wanted it because no one was reading it. And then it got buried under the new submissions. And then when people finally got to it, they're like, oh, yeah, no, I didn't really connect to this. And then that agent dropped me. And then I tried to self-publish it on the Amazon. And I started to make a little money from it, actually. And then the cyber harassers found it and said, this book is full of, misog- you know, oh boy. And then I had to have that book down, t- taken down from Amazon. That book will never live again. Wow. Now I have a new thing that I am so proud of that if people check out in my pinned tweet, wh- the whole story about how I met Dave Grohl 20 years ago, this coming August, the best story in the world. Nobody has a story like that. I decided to take that story and fictionalize it beyond because Dave Grohl and I have never had any sort of physical relationship. So unfortunately, so, uh, but maybe fortunately, I don't know. But so I decided to fictionalize it back in 2015. I started writing this rock and roll love story, very, you know, loosely based on the very unique way that Dave and I met. And then Trump happened and I stopped writing about anything except politics. And then the quarantine happened. And I was like, uh, if I'm going to be inside for the next year, I better, you know, be productive. And then my brain was like, Hey, remember that thing? And I went back and I read it. I was like, why did, why did I stop writing this? This is good. And you know, when you write something, when it's good, you just know when something's shit and you just, you're like, what, what was I thinking? Oh yeah. I have a, I have a huge box of notebooks to my right here full of, (laughs) right. We all have that started thing that you're just like, Oh man, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't smoke pot and write. I don't know. Right. Or then you see something on TV or you read like the, the back cover of a book that's on a shelf at Powell's or whatever. And you go, how did this get made? When you know, in the back of your head, you know, and not to be braggadocious, not to be egotistical. You just know it's in you that you can do something better than that. If somebody will give you a shot at exactly. It. And the fact, and it, it's so infuriating that Sean Spicer has a book or Don Jr. has a book because of their connections, but I, I don't. Right. And I understand those are all ghost-written pieces of crap that are going to end up in the bargain bin, but they still got it. They still got the book deal. They still had the experience. They still got published. They still got the money. They still got the recognition, even if it's inauthentic and empty for them, what it would mean to me. I Like, I can't even describe it. And so it's just, it's incredibly frustrating, but like, I went back and I'm sitting, you know, I read, I had written about 75 pages before I, I put it away and started doing the political stuff. And I was like, this is, I have something here. I have something. And so I went back to it 
And what's really weird is, you know, I haven't spoken to Dave Grohl since 2009. That's the last time we saw each other and could speak. I went to a Foo Fighters concert in 2015 and he saw me, but we couldn't speak. So I started rewriting this. I picked up where I left off, you know, like end of March when the quarantines began. Two days later, Dave Grohl started writing this thing called Dave's True Stories on Medium. That's also an Instagram account. He's only written like six. But by the time he started that, I read his first entry. There were things in his first entry that I had put in my book, not knowing anything, just like a weird coincidence. And in in every single one of his six posts on Instagram, I had already put in my book something similar within that because just stuff that I knew about him, things that I, but things that I super fictionalized, but like there's a post where he talks about driving across the country with Taylor Hawkins because they drove from LA to Virginia, to his home in Virginia to record. There is nothing left to lose the Foo Fighters third album, the one with uh, learn to fly and breakout that they recorded at his house. And he said, you know, in the middle of the night, they stopped at some Seven Eleven and they bought all of this crap, including slim Jims because Taylor loves slim Jims. I had already written in my book, there's an amalgam character that has a little bit of Taylor Hawkins in him. And that character goes out and gets shitty drunk in Atlanta and buys all of this crappy food, including Slim Jims. This is a weird detail. But two days later, Dave Grohl wrote about Slim Jims. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that Dave Grohl and I have a psychic connection. I'm just saying it's weird. Right. And he had also, in my book, I had written, like, the, the, the book is not, it's not Dave Grohl's life. The band is not called Pooh Piters. It's not, you know, he doesn't have a song called, you know, Learn to Flying, Learn to Fry. It's not fan fiction, okay? It's not what... There's nothing called Never Wrong. No! No, 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 no. There's not... The life of the band in the book is not the life of the band in reality. However, there's just these odd coincidences, and there are things that... I've had enough conversations with Dave. There are plenty of things that I've shared, but then there are plenty of things that I haven't. But it is a rock and roll romance. It is the best... It's the best thing I've ever written. I go back and I read it. Like, I put it away for a little while, and then I go back and read it. And I'm like, this, this is good. I have tried to pitch it now. They have that thing on, on Twitter called Pit Mad, where people can pitch their full completed manuscripts to agents. Nobody ever. There was one agent. The last time I did Pit Mad, one agent responded to it. No, not this last one, but the one back in uh, September. One agent responded to it. Some agent in South Africa who had no clients. And I was like, mm, I don't know. She wanted to, she offered me a contract before she even finished reading the manuscript. So that's sketchy. And within the contract, she wanted me to give her my social security number. I was like, I don't think I'm going to do that. And then she dropped me when I wouldn't. She's like, oh, well, you know, this will take too much editing and I'm not an editorial agent. I'm like, okay, I, you couldn't grift me. I got, I got smarter is basically the point of that. So here I am. I have this visibility on Twitter. I have amazing connectivity. Thanks to the visibility on Twitter. I have, I could humble brag all day. Who follows me on Twitter? The big accounts who follow me, big accounts who retweet me. Mark Ruffalo retweeted me the other day. Patton Oswalt follows me. I have a blurb from Cameron Crowe. Alyssa Milano says that she loves me. That's great. That doesn't get me a book deal. My mom will say things to me because she doesn't understand things. She's (laughs) not on Twitter. My mom will say, I don't understand. You know, all of these famous people, how come they don't help you? Like, what do you want me to do, mom? Am I supposed to be like, can you help me get an agent? You're my friend. Can I, can I, can you help me? I mean, like the most I do, 
is I ask the famous friends of mine that I'm in DM rooms with, will you please retweet this? Uh, will you give me a pity retweet for this non-political tweet? Because everything we do is politics. But I need to break out of that sometimes. I need, I mean, like just as self-care, we all have to take a break from the politics. I can rage tweet about Trump all day long. At the end of my evening, I do not want politics to be the last thing in my brain before I go to sleep. So I'll watch HGTV and all of those home makeover shows with happy endings. That's what I want to see before I go to bed. Some nice bathroom, you know, some nice kitchen tile and a beautiful soaking tub. You know, just beautiful reality. And you're a cat mom now. And I'm a cat mom. So I have these beautiful cats. But like there's more than the politics. And to be recognized for that would be lovely. The, The bottom line is like, I can always talk about politics into the future. I can write books about my political experience, what happened to me in 2016. Uh, Eventually, I would love to write a memoir. I have a great title. The title is My Mess is a Life because everything that happens to me is shithouse, crazy, weird, and the connections that I have are insane. I don't have two nickels to rub together, but one of my best friends is a trust fund baby. Or, you know, I can't get a book deal, but Mark Ruffalo retweeted me. It's like these weird dichotomies of my life. It's like I live in this shitty, shitty apartment complex, but people connected to the Biden campaign know my name or Lawrence O'Donnell retweets me or, you know, Mark Hamill likes a tweet of mine. Like these are nice little boosts and you get that, you know, you get a little bit of an adrenaline rush and you get, you know, a little bit of satisfaction. Ooh, I'm getting acknowledged. Ooh, somebody notices me. That's great. Girl with a microphone has a book deal. Girl with a microphone. I'm sure she has a very interesting life story to tell. She's funny and she's talented. I follow her. I think she's great. It's frustrating to me to see somebody get a book deal because they're enjoying a cultural moment that's going to pass. But something that is eternal. Love is eternal. You know, a love story is eternal. A very simple love story, a character study, a a human story that's based on a really cool story, I get all of these responses. Anytime I promote my book, anytime I promote my, my, my tweet. And the other thing that's been incredibly frustrating about that is even in the quarantine, Dave Grohl has been ubiquitous. I, ubiquitous. He's like everywhere I look, he's in the Atlantic writing essays about protecting our, you know, honoring our teachers. Cause his mom is a teacher He's doing all of these. He's doing drum duels with Nandy Bushell. He's doing interviews with all of these different people. He and his mom did a thing with Jill Biden. He's and they're releasing a new album. They're everywhere. Every time the Foo Fighters do something, I try to do something with my pinned tweet. It's also their 20, excuse me, their 25th anniversary. And they want stories about, you know, their fans. And I try to get their attention. I can't even get the Foo Fighters official account attention with my 61,000 followers and my blue check mark. So I don't even know how to get in touch with Dave Grohl anymore. So if I could, I would say, hey, friend, old friend, who always called me his friend, would be super great if you would notice my pinned tweet and maybe give it a little, give it a little love, put a little love on that tweet mm-hmm. because I have been struggling. It's one thing if you were walking around like Kim Kardashian and uh, you know a book deal would be a drop in the bucket and you wouldn't even feel it. For me, it would change everything it would change everything because you know and people who know me know people who know me well know that i have not felt like myself 
since I lost my radio job. I have recreated myself and I've managed to find a way for myself, but it doesn't feel 100% like me because I don't, I still don't feel like I'm in charge of it. I'm writing for Hill Reporter, which is a wonderful opportunity. I'm very grateful for, because if I didn't have that, I don't know how I would be paying my rent. I really don't because, you know, the government's not helping. I should not be 51 and struggling like this anymore. I should not have to be struggling like this 11 years after losing my dream job. I shouldn't. It shouldn't be this hard for me. And yet it is, even though I have been trying so hard. And I don't know what is left for me to try at this point because the best of social media is supposed to lift you up and shine the light on you so people can find you. People have found me, but I have not been able to take it to the next level where people outside of Twitter can find me. And I don't know how to do that other than continuing to beg and plead for people to help me get found outside of Twitter, help me find an agent, help me get published. When Josh Hawley announced that he lost his book deal from Simon and Schuster, I was like, well, you don't deserve a book deal. I deserve a book deal. I am a actually talented writer who isn't openly committing treason and sedition. Maybe you'd like to look at me instead, Simon and Schuster. I can't get them to look at me. And I also don't know how to do this better because I don't have an agent advocating for me. If I'm the only one who's advocating for myself, how can I do it better? I don't know. I don't know how to do it better beyond having a verified Twitter account that increases. And that's the other thing that's frustrating because up until just before the pandemic shut everything down, I was actively still trying to get back into radio in Portland because someone I know who is very well connected in radio found me on Twitter and said, you are incredibly talented. Why are you not on the air in Portland? And I was like, you're seriously asking that? You know radio. You know what it's like. How can you ask me that? He's like, well, hold on. I know people on the ground in Portland. Let me talk to them and see if they'll talk to you. I said, I'm going to tell you right now what they are going to say to you. They're going to say, oh, yeah, I know who she is. Oh, yeah, no, she's great. She's she's very talented. She's got a great voice. She's got great connectivity. I don't have a job for her. Right. That's what they're going to say. They're going to say they have good people in place already. They like the people they have in place and they're not going to fire the people they have in place. doesn't matter that radio is based on scorching the earth and rebuilding. doesn't mm-hmm. matter. And here's, here's the thing. So, you know, the local radio uh, company, Alpha Media. Yep. And they have Kink and they have uh, K, well, KUFO that has switched now, but they have KXL and they have, they have a few stations over there. And I have lost count now of how many times I was brought in over there to talk to people. And then nothing ever came of it. I have been over there to talk to, I mean, people who are not with the company anymore. There was a a moment several years ago, uh, a guy moved to Portland. His name was Sean Demery. And Sean Demery was a radio alternative radio legend. He was on the uh, station in Atlanta called 99 X, which was a station I listened to when I was in college. 99 X was awesome. He and Leslie Fram. I don't know. Do you know Leslie Fram? Not personally, no. Oh, my God. But you know who she is. Radio goddess. Leslie Fram and Sean Demery ruled that morning show. Mm-hmm. When I found out he was in Portland, I was like, that's my in. He was the new PD at Kink. I was like, all I have to do is email Sean Demery, let him know how much I love 99X, let him know who I am, and we're going to have a conversation. And that's what happened. I emailed him. He was like, I have heard of you. Let's get you in here. 
So I went there and I talked to him and he was like, listen, this is a legacy station. I have no idea what to do with it. I have to scorch the earth. I don't know what to do. Sit tight. Give me a couple of months to figure out what I want. And then I'll bring you back in. And then unfortunately, Sean Demery had a stroke and, and uh, I know. And, and unfortunately he passed away as a result of the stroke. And I was just like, Oh, that's devastating. It's devastating because Sean Demery was such a major talent and a force. And uh, we, he called us dinosaurs because there are very few people left who remember what terrestrial radio should sound like. And so he understood it and he understood that I understood it. And there's very few of us left. And when you find somebody who understands terrestrial radio and the power of it, you need to like cling to each other. So we lost Sean Demery. And then they replaced him with this guy. I don't remember his last name. His first name was Ronnie. He was this kind of crazy Australian dude. So I reached out to him. He's like, yeah, I've heard about you. I've heard you're great. Come on in. Let's talk. I went in. I talked to Ronnie and I met Ronnie. He was like, you're great. I'm scorching the earth. I don't know what I'm going to do with King. It's a legacy station. All the same shit. All the same things that Sean Demery said. And he's like, yeah, but just give me a little time and I'll bring you back in. And then his mother got ill and he had to move back to Australia. And that was that. And then I just was like, I, I, this is not meant to be. The universe is physically keeping me from getting another radio job. I mean, I'm just going to give up. Then this guy last year was like, why aren't you in radio? And put me through the ringer all over again. And I went back and there are new people in charge at kink, new people in charge over there. And I, I had probably one of the last meetings that that guy had in person before everything shut down. And he's like, I can see that, you know, that I can see your talent. I can see, it's like, I have great people in place and I don't want to, I'm not going to fire them. I don't have any, I don't have a job for you. And I felt so stupid because I had told the guy, my friend who connected me with these people, I was like, I know what they're going to say. He's like, you don't know what they're going to say. I said, I know exactly what they're going to say. And so I was very angry because that guy gave me hope that I hadn't had for a really long time. And I resented him for giving me that hope because he was convinced that they were going to be so wowed by me. And he was like, well, maybe you just didn't wow them enough. And I was like, you know what? Fuck you, man. You made me go in there. You made me open myself up to this again. When I told you they didn't have a job for me, you still made me, you know, you still convinced me to go. You can't make people hire me. No. You can't. And that's what's so fucking frustrating. It's like, I know where I belong. I know what I have to offer. I could still do a podcast, but I, you know, I'm kind of like exhausted from trying, trying, trying. And of course, the definition of insanity is trying the same thing and expecting a different result. And there is a point where you stop trying. Same thing with dating. I have been single for so fucking long. It is a misery. There is no one I need to stop trying. Yeah. But as a human, you're like, it's human to want to connect with other humans. So the other thing, the other thing that's very human is, you know what you love, you know mm-hmm. what you're meant to do, you know what drives you, you know what pulls you, you know what engages you. And to deny that is to, to deny your own humanity. Right. So for me to say, I don't need radio, I don't need this, I don't, is a lie. Yeah. Because... And even if I don't find it authentic, uh, if Sirius XM was like, do you want a job? I'd be like, fuck yeah, I do. I don't love the idea. When satellite radio became a thing, I was like, wow, we're fucked. If people are willing to pay for radio when they could have it for free, that tells you how bad terrestrial radio is doing. Right. So that's. No, I mean, I, I totally 
and and I understand your frustration on multiple levels. I mean, I and people don't believe me when I tell them until I show them my spreadsheet outlining that from 2014 to 2019, I applied to more than a thousand jobs around the country and got none of right. them. I got interviews at fewer than 25 of those. Right. And and like you, you're and, like, why doesn't anybody want me? I'm so great. Right. And And on the other side, like you. I've been, as I refer to my friends about it, I've been retired since 2011 because that similar dynamic of you put yourself out there, you try to be authentic, you try and convey to people that, hey, I'm a person who is worth making that sort of investment in. And the people that you want to get that reaction from go, yeah, no. Yeah. No one's ever heard of you. Why should I take it? Why should I take a chance? Right. And, and, and it's the same thing with dating. It's the, it is. It's so fright. I don't, I mean, it's even worse, but like if I had to choose, if the universe was like, I'm going to give you a choice, boyfriend or book deal, I'm choosing book deal. And so yeah, I'm 51, like a boyfriend now would be like, ugh, you know, like dealing with another human being's issues when I'm still dealing with my own. Like, I, I don't know that I have the energy for it. That's that point that age kind of gives you. I mean, I'm I'm not too far behind you, but it's also that realization of you dedicated your whole life to trying to reach these levels you set for yourself. And when you can't and the impact and for lack of a better term, because it's an honest term, the trauma that you go through. It's absolutely of, it's emotional trauma. And, and you realize, OK, I need to be able to deal with all this crap before i commit myself to wanting to be with somebody else but at the same time it's that human thing that you mentioned of but i really want that somebody else too no it's that but it's to know that you have all of this to to give to a company like here i am i am an untapped gold mine you could make millions from me i can show you that i have value i would go to these radio stations and i would say Your radio station account has 3,000 Twitter followers. You have no engagement. You have no growth potential. You do nothing to engage your audience. I get 10,000 new followers every six weeks or so. Or I show them, here's growth. Here on this date, I had this many followers. On this date, I have this many more followers. You aren't growing. I'm growing. I am personally growing my audience by myself. Without a microphone. No. Without a microphone, without an agent, without a corporation pushing me, without anybody advertising for me, without any sort of, uh, you know, other presence. And without a paycheck. Right. And no, yeah, exactly. I can't, I've never monetized my Twitter except for the very few, like the impeachment task force from the Democratic coalition. When you hear, I've done some uh, voiceovers for them. I just did uh, ads for Warnock and Ossoff in Georgia. So that's great. And I do make a little money from from that, and that's great. But that's not a, a publisher or an agent finding me and helping me get a book deal right. from Twitter. It's not because that's what would that's hap- that happened in the early days of of social media. You know, like people were just getting all of this stuff handed to them because all of this talent was being found uh, online. And I don't know how they how I've managed to like slip through when they when they're panning for gold. How I fall through like a very small hole in the pan or something. Because I belong there, right? you know? And the other thing that's frustrating is that I still live here and I'm not living in Los Angeles. And people would say, you know, after I lost my radio job in 2009, people were like, well, just move. And my children were very young at the time. 
and I would not, I mean, Jack was 10 and Ben was seven. I was not going to move away from my children. And I certainly was not going to move my children away from their father. So that was not an option for me. And I would repeatedly tell people, what kind of an asshole would I be if I moved away from my children because I couldn't get a cool job? Right. What kind well. of an asshole? What <laughs> kind of a self? Like if I was a man, people were like, she moved away. He moved away for his job. That's fine. He sees his kids three times a year. People are like, oh, that's okay. But if a woman did that, a woman moved away for her job and only saw her kids three times a year, forget it. Forget it. Her career would be over. So I said to people, I can wait. I will never put my relationship with my children on the back burner for my own opportunities. Nope. I am a mother before I am anything. So it wouldn't have mattered. Like, the only thing that could have made me do that if someone said, here's a multi-million dollar opportunity, that would have been different and I would have made it work. That right. has never happened. No one has ever said to me, I have a job for you. People would say, go there and look for work. No, I am not. Now it's different. Of course, pre-pandemic, I had one plan. We all don't know what's going to happen now. I, my older son is, is graduating college in June. My younger son is graduating high school in June. I was supposed to be free this June. Before the pandemic, my goal for June 2021 was getting the fuck out of the Pacific Northwest once and for all. Finally, finally. Mm -hmm. Because it, this place is very restrictive. And the one, one thing that I've noticed, peak Portland that people talk about, like 2002 to 2009, um, that's it's great. Gone. gone, so gone. Because, and this city has stopped supporting its creatives because all of the tech people moved up from San Francisco and We're now down we from are Seattle. Right. And now we are basically Silicon Valley adjacent. Yep. That's what Port Portland is now. So the tech people have taken over. The creatives are moving out. There's no support system for creativity here. Not really, unless you're the Dandy Warhols or you're incredibly or you're Thomas Lauderdale from Pink Martini and you're independently wealthy. So this city does not sustain or support this. It makes sense for me to look elsewhere for uh, opportunities uh, as far as like physically working outside the home. Yep. So in my mind, I was like, my kids graduate, hopefully. And Jack was at Occidental College in Los Angeles. So he was already in LA. Ben is applied there. I hope he'll get in. I would love for all of us to go to LA. I can't sure. count. I can't count on that. But I have so much connectivity. If I was on the ground in LA, I could get a lot of work. And I've had people say that to me. They're like, you have a great voice, but L.A. is filled with voiceover actors. They don't need someone from Portland when they have a ton of talent here. If you mm -hmm. were physically here, you could get work. You are not physically here. You will not be able to get work. And so that's what or I could just be a movie and TV extra for the rest of my life and be perfectly content and be near the ocean. I need to get out of Portland um, unless a book deal landed in my lap. And of course, you can write from anywhere. Right. So right now I'm in this weird holding pattern of trying to figure out what I want to do based on, I mean, you should never follow your children through life, but I don't want to have to always get on a plane to see my kids. My whole family's on the other side of the country. So I don't want to live like that. So I'm waiting to see kind of what happens um, where Ben ends up, ends up going to college, what Jack decides to do with his post-college life before I make, I sort of a plan A and a plan B, but ultimately really and truly what would make my life feel authentically like mine again is for someone to just honor what I put out in the world and say, I want this book. I want to help you birth this book into the world. I am going to get you 
a publisher. We're going to get you a film deal. We're going to move forward. I'm tired of dreaming about it and I'm ready to live it. I just can't make that next step to connect to anybody. So hopefully once this is, you know, edited and in the world and people are listening to it, someone will say, you know, yes, I know somebody, or I am that somebody, or I hear this, I hear this talent. I recognize this talent because why else are we doing what we do? Right. Why else am I on Twitter all day? I mean, the politics, yes. Am I making a difference in politics? Uh, my voice is just one of millions Yeah. In, in, in the resistance. I'm happy to have been an elevated voice. The, the blue check mark has elevated me. People who might not have ever known that I exist now know I exist. Sure. So that's the benefit of social media. But it has also created sort of this false sense of, uh, you know, fame or recognition People can go on TikTok and within moments, their video can go viral and everyone will know their name. Yeah. That's never happened to me, except in a very bad way. Right. In a very bad way. You know, people knew my name for a few minutes in 2016 because I was the crazy libtard. For all the wrong reasons. For all the wrong reasons. I'm ready to go viral for the right reasons. Sure. I am. I'm ready to be known for the right reasons. I'm ready to be known for my voice or my writing or my political savvy or whatever the reason is. Like, if Joy Reid follows me, Rachel Maddow follows me, Nicole Wallace follows me, never interacted with any of them. One, if I could get invited on MSNBC one time, yep. like just that, just that. Not that I'm better than any, and I'm not. I mean, I if you put me on a panel with Zerlina Maxwell, she would just run right over me and rightly so, because she's amazing. That doesn't mean I don't have something to contribute. There, I know that there is opportunity mm-hmm. and it's like I can, I can I graze it with my fingertips, but I can't grab it and hold on to it. Right. And that's the frustration, right? Because I know it's there. I know it's it exists in the world. I know what I have and I know what I have to offer. And there are plenty of people who acknowledge it because like the other day when I was like, I should have Josh Hawley's book deal. I should have Josh Hawley's book deal. Plenty of people were like, yes, you should. Yes, you should. And I would read your book. I really want to read your book. And I'd be like, see, Simon Schuster, I have a built-in audience. I have a built-in audience right here. I'm not going to get Simon Schuster's attention. It doesn't matter how many times I tag them. It doesn't. It doesn't matter how many times I tag, you know, the FBI. They're not going to investigate the people who cyber stalk me. doesn't matter. When I was being horrifically cyber harassed and I couldn't sleep, I didn't sleep for days. And I, when I did sleep, I had a knife under my pillow because I thought people were coming to kill me. Damn. I, it was, I didn't leave my house for nine days. Yeah. I remember that. When I, when that started, I called the FBI cyber crimes unit five times and nobody did shit for me. Nobody. The local police in Clark County, Washington are red, red, red. They didn't do shit to protect me. Nothing. Nobody did anything to protect me. And I had to do it myself. You know, someday it would be nice if the universe was like, here you go, Tara. Here's a little reward for the last shitty 11 years. Because like I said, we all personalize the world's events. We all personalize and say, why does this happen to me? Why does this happen to me? I'm the Charlie Brownest of all the Charlie Browns. That's not true. That is not true. However, it's hard to not think like that when you have a lengthy losing streak. Yeah. Right? Oh, yes. I don't have to tell you. No. When you push and push and push, when you're like, it's when you're, you know, you're the guy, who's the guy that pushes the, is, is it, who's the one that pushes the rock up and it rolls back? Sisyphus. Sisyphus. Okay. So you're Sisyphus. I am Sisyphus. I am the female 
modern version of Sisyphus because I push that rock all the way up, all the way up, all the way up, and then it just rolls all the way back down. And you got to push it back up because what else are you going to do? Exactly, because if I give up, then what happens after that? Right. I, I don't have the luxury to give up. No. I don't have life savings that I'm sitting on. I don't have, a, you know, a, I don't have anything. It's all gone. That's the other thing. After I lost my radio job and I was unemployed for nearly three years, all the savings was gone. All the 401k was gone. Everything, it's gone. I lost my, I finally lost my house a few years ago and had to move into a shitty apartment. And the only, one of the few things that didn't happen to me when I was cyber harassed, they didn't ruin my credit rating because they realized I already did it myself. So that's one thing I didn't have to worry about. They didn't try to garnish my money because I didn't have any. Right. So, and even to this day, to this day, people still somehow find my phone number or my address or my email and send me the craziest shit. Not yet today because I really haven't looked at a lot, but someone, and I, I'll just say this obliquely, someone I know is being severely doxxed right now and has been for the last like two years. Wow. Anybody who, in sometimes, not everybody, some people who interact with him on Twitter end up getting doxxed also. And because of my blue check. It's a big bullseye. It's a bullseye. So the people who were doxing him found me and started doxing me too and started sending me really terrible. I mean, I'll say this. After my experience in 2016, after my all of my experiences online, I already, I understand how these people work. I understand the projection language. I understand the swarming. I understand all of the tactics and none of it scares me. None of it. Mm -hmm. I mean, what I saw on Wednesday scared me. Because what I saw, what we saw on the cap, at the Capitol on Wednesday was a personal violation to every single American. And they might as well have come into our own homes and shit on our floors and smeared their shit on our walls and pissed on our lives. Because that's what they did when mm -hmm. they did that to our house. So that's one. I don't expect them to do that to me physically. I don't, I don't anticipate them coming to my house and doing that. What I have learned when they do this to regular citizens it's it's to disrupt their lives. It's to upset them and scare them and, you know, make them act in a way that, you know, lets those other people know that they got to them. And that's what I did in 2016. It was very clear that they scared me in 2016. I unfortunately let them know that they were scaring me and they did it more. Now they don't scare me. Mm -hmm. Oh, you called me a bad name on Twitter. Oh, nah. blocked. I mean, I don't care. What are you going to say to me? What can you say that no one else has ever said to me? Nothing there. They threatened my life. They, they have threatened. They, they told me I should kill myself. They told me that my children deserve to have cancer and die. They told me I just, they would say I deserve to be raped, but who would ever fuck me? You know, like all of that. So none of it means anything. It's like the Charlie Brown teacher, like, wah, 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 wah. It's like, are you done? Good. These people are so stupid that, I mean, they hide behind spoofed phone numbers. So you can't find them. That's the smartest thing they do. They hide behind these spoofed phone numbers. So like if you respond to them, they're just going to call you from a different number. Right. So the other day I got one that said, hey, Joe, your wife uh, has never had an orgasm and you're all this. And I was and, you know, you're not really supposed to respond to these people because what that's what no. they want. They want they want your attention and they want your energy. Right. But this is me. I couldn't resist. This is on my text. This is on my phone. Wow. The phone number that I have had since 2001 and can't possibly change. So, and I was like, you people are so fucking stupid. You can't even dox the right person. Right. So then they responded to me from a different number. And they're like, well, the reason I did this is that you drive me. You make me do this, Tara. Why do you make me 
you know, why do you do, why do you act the way you do? Because now you make me respond like this. I mean, it's like that abuser shaming language that Donald Trump uses. Yep. Why do you make me do this? You, why do you make me hit you? Why do you make me treat you like this? And the guy was like, I don't want to follow you on Twitter. I don't want you make me do this. And I was like, really? Then fucking do this to me on Twitter, you fucking coward. Right. You, you're so brave. You text me where no one can see this. Do it on Twitter where everybody can see it. And he yeah. hasn't texted me since. Flex those big internet muscles and show us how manly you are. I mean, you and your micro penis don't scare me because you're not <laughs> a real threat to me. Right. You're hiding behind a screen that's so brave. Did you show up at on on Wednesday, were you there on Wednesday? Were you there making your presence known? No, you're hiding somewhere behind a spoof number, behind a screen, and you're saying you're an apostle of God. Fuck you, dude. I'm not, there's no God. There's no Jesus. I'm not scared of you. You were not sent by anybody. Stop it. Well, you promised me an hour. We clearly ran far afield of that. Have fun editing this. But... Honestly, I'm I'm so glad we got to catch up. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk and and you kind of got to put yourself out there. When I decided to put this little project of mine together as a one man band, I'm like, okay, who are the people that I really want to talk to in this first season? And and honest to God, I will say this under oath, you were the first person I thought of. Oh, because thank I you know so much. Because I obviously. I hope that 2021 gets you much further down the road to where you want to be than where you're currently at. But I want that for all of us. Yeah. Like, We've had enough. Whoa. The last four years, we all need a break. We all need a break. We all need things to get better now. That's painfully obvious. And I mean, while I'm, I'm not so naive as to believe that the world magically changes on January 20th, what I do believe is that the president sets the tone for the for the country and his emotions seem to set the tone for the country. So you had somebody strong and powerful and confident like Barack Obama. We all strutted around for eight years. Everything was fine. Daddy was taking care of us. We didn't have to pay attention to everything he did and said. We weren't worried about it. We didn't wake up every morning grabbing our phones because what the fuck did he do now? We didn't live like that. We've lived like that for the last four and a half, five years. What the fuck did he do now? And so what we need to do moving forward is figure out a way to not live like this anymore. We don't need to live at the height of outrage after this. There will come that Biden calm, which is my hashtag, by the way. Hashtag Biden calm is mine. For the last couple of months, I've been saying we are going to have a post-Trump, post-COVID existence. We need to figure out how to live like that again, because living at the height of outrage all day, every day is so unhealthy. And we need to decompress from that and we need to get back to a daily existence that doesn't feel like your skin is on fire all of the time and i believe and i don't care if it sounds naive i know it's not going to magically change on the 20th but we to get you know all of us need to make an effort to get back to being a society that we can be proud of being a part of because we're right i mean we, he made us a joke on the global stage and we are we've lost trust and we've lost status. Well, as soon as Joe Biden announced that he was going to run, I knew that that was the way to kind of, even though he wasn't my original dream candidate, a way to get back our reputation because he has a wonderful foreign policy. He did amazing things as VP overseas. And I think we'll get it back because of him. I just would love to see a return to some more human kindness. And, and, and maybe it sounds, you know, a little uh, ironic coming from the woman who tells people to go fuck themselves all the time on Twitter. And that's fine. 
I still believe in my heart of hearts that when we are not fueled by the daily outrage and we can get back to the business of just living again, everything will just kind of, we will decompress. We will come back. We will be able to reconnect as humans. The, the faction that is overtaking the news cycle will quiet down because when a cult loses its cult leader and they don't have somebody spurning them on every day, that energy dissipates very quickly. We're already seeing people turn against him. There was an article in, Polit- in Politico saying that people are already using the internet to like speak, call Trump a traitor, call it, say he's, he's not their hero. So I think that we're going to see a, a, a new normal, but one that isn't based on daily outrage. That's mm. what I look forward to. Um, uh, that, that sense of where we can just kind of joke around on Twitter again, have fun with it again, have fun with each other again, enjoy being around. Like once we're released back into the world, which, you know, I, like I said earlier, I'm really tired of the stupid m- minority holding the majority hostage. I would love to believe that after the events that we saw this week and the majority of Americans saw how inept, not just Donald Trump, but his enablers are, everyone's ready for America to look like America. Her name is Tara Dublin. Woo-hoo! You can find her on Twitter at Tara Dublin Rocks. And you are. You are a rock star. You are a social media warrior. And thank you for being part of my very first skull session. I'm very, very flattered and honored. And when your podcast is super, super famous, I can brag that I was on the first one. Well, one can only hope. And if that's the case, hopefully at that point, I'll have a residual check and you and I can profit. (laughs) Thank you, Tara. Thanks for listening to this episode of Skull Sessions. You can follow Tara Dublin on Twitter at Tara Dublin Rocks, and her writing can be found online at thehillreporter.com and Medium. She was also a contributing essayist to the nonfiction book Nasty by Kingshot Press. Copies are still available at kingshotpress.com as well as powells.com and Amazon. If you're in the publishing industry and you're looking for someone with a strong voice and something to say, seriously, give Tara a call. She deserves a shot after 11 years of just trying to tread water. If you like the show, please leave me a review at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you gave it a listen. Your feedback helps both me and the show, and I'd really appreciate it. If you want to be part of the show, you can contribute through my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Higgins. I promise... The J's only there because every other version of my name was taken. For as little as $5 a month, you can be a producer and included in the credits here at the end of the show. You'll also be able to get advance notice of upcoming shows and in the first crack of bonus content once I figure out just exactly what that's going to be. All Patreon proceeds go towards keeping the show going and making it better through the purchase of new equipment, so I'll make sure your investment is well spent. Music for the show is provided, with full permission, by my sister, Rowan Church. You can follow their band, The Crystal Furs, at crystalfurs.bandcamp.com. Their new album is in the works and set to come out later this year, but there's still a lot of good stuff there to choose from. Skull Sessions is a presentation of Pressbox Productions, copyright 2021, all rights reserved. I'm Devin Higgins, thanks again for listening, and I'll be back next week with another Skull Session. Talk to you then. Bye. Bye.